It is of no coincidence that Paul mentions about sowing to the Spirit on the heels of mentioning the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit are a result of sowing. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, I do not believe that is an exhaustive list. But I will tell you, it's a good start. And if you can get those nine down, Pat, I promise you right now, you'll be well on your way to seeing a harvest come from the rest of it. Now, I want to notice here something that in this passage, Paul, his language is a little bit different into uh, when he contrasts this flesh and spirit. And I want to try to bring a little bit of that together. We notice here that he is also mentioned about, he mentions the works of the flesh. Let's look at the flesh side just for a moment before we get into the spirit because there's a point that I want to make about this. He talks about in verse 19, for now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, witchcraft, Literally here in this passage, we understand adultery. We understand fornication. Uncleanness, just so you understand them. Uncleanness is, is activity in itself that is simply morally not proper. And uh, it, it is simply, it can be various sexual acts that are unclean that, that uh, may even fall in the idea of fornication. But you know, there's some things, there's things that people do today that are just wow. Mind-boggling how the mind ever even came up with such a thing. It's so wicked. But it is unclean. Uncleanness is the result of that which is holy. Or the opposite, rather. The opposite of that which is holy. And so unclean is that which makes you unfit to come to the presence of God. Remember how the Lord in the Old Testament talked about that if you, if you touched a dead body, if you, uh, there were certain things that if you did, you would become ceremonially at least unclean to enter in. Lepers could not enter into the presence of the Lord and could not come. They had to be put outside the camp because they were unclean. And so it was this idea of that which makes you not suitable for normal society and engagement and interaction. It's that which makes you unsuitable for the presence of God and entering into worship. Your thoughts can be unclean. Just, just thinking of activities that are, are not morally sound and upright. Uh, people sometimes, the, the jokes that are told today... Um, uncleanness, just massively unclean. Some of the comedy, the language that is very base. And, and you know, there's just things that, that I understand there's certain things that, that maybe the church does, we need to address and we need to talk about in the right, in the right congregation, in the right setting. Uh, men that need to get together and, and discuss certain things and understand here's what you do to be a man, here's how you love your wife, certain things that you do. And you can, you can use appropriate language. The Bible sometimes uses language that, that would, uh, it's very plain. <laughs> I'll just put it to you that way. It's very, very plain. Uh, the, the Bible uses as, as, and talks about uh, body parts and, and, and talks about uh, relations between men and women in a way that's very, very frank. And I think you can deal with that in proper settings. But we have went way beyond that uh, uh, today in, in our, our conversations to talk about things that have no business being talked about in, in public settings. And so unclean activity. Then there's this idea of lasciviousness. This is just an excessive passion and desire uh, that, that when men take their desires way, way, way too far. Again, you can look at the things and activities that are going on. All you got to do is look at Hollywood, and, and they epitomize this right here. Lasciviousness is a desires that are just simply out of control. Idolatry, we understand, putting something in the place of God and worshiping it, uh, letting it become first place in your life. Witchcraft here 
literally is the employment of drugs for any purpose, sorceries. But it was particularly uh, involved this idea of the use of drugs in order to have mind-altering experiences. And so that is the meaning of this word witchcraft. It is the word pharmakia. It's where we get our word pharmacy. But it is the word that, that is, is used to indicate a use of drugs and particularly to that which is going to bring a mind-altering experience. Um, hatred is hostility, enmity towards others. Then there's variance which means being contentious, a contentious disposition. Someone that's at variance is just someone, man, I'm telling you, it's hard to get along with. They're just fuss all the time. Then there's emulations, and this is the idea of uh, rivalry, uh, being someone who is, is constantly at, at, uh, at rivalry with one another. And then there is wrath, and this is, again, the idea of... Um, Give me a second. I'm straining, and there's no use to strain. They have eyeglasses. And I can read much better when I have them on. All right, here we go. Emulations, jealousy, and rivalry. Wrath is the idea of this swellings up of anger and a passion just comes up like a foments like an ocean, if you will. Strife uh, is the idea of feuds. Have you ever seen, you know, Hatfields and McCoys? You got this party division and separation, that party spirit. You know, those who don't ever in a church, you can have close friends in a church. You can you can have people that you love, and you're going to be close. That's going to happen in a church. You're not going to be close to everybody, but you're going to be close to various people. But we never have cliques. We never have little groups in the church. We never have this group over here against this group. Uh, I don't like dynasties. And uh, I've seen churches where it went from father to son, you know, and, and, uh, and the, the, the pastor's family did it all. Hey, I think pastors ought to, I, I love it that my family's in this church, but I don't, uh, uh, I don't treat them any different than I do anybody else. And you, you tow the road, you know, get in and work like everybody else. Hey, jump on board. Um, I don't believe in this idea of a dynasty uh, that the church is set up so that, that this family's the only one that can do anything. I want everybody doing something, you know. You ought to be involved in it. And that's this business of strife and seditions. It's just bringing division and disunion. Heresies is also the idea of diversity or division, but it's that which arises from a difference in doctrines or beliefs and opinions. And then there's envyings, and that's just spite and ill will that one has. Revelings, um, an immoral activity, drunkenness, if you will, rioting and that sort of thing. It is just when you, it's that party spirit where you just want to shout loud and do things that are, are um, uh, have a big old party and let the world see about it. Revelings. You notice, have you noticed, it's that, it's that spirit across America. We call it protest. Ain't, nothing, ain't no protest, it's a riot. You know, to do the protest. Peaceful protest, you hold a sign, you let the government know you're not, you don't like things it is, but a protest doesn't break out store windows. A protest doesn't go in and rob some man's businesses. That is thievery. That's rioting. Revelings, it's that kind of thing. And such like... Well, let's see how many did we have, and it's not an exhaustive list either. We had 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and if you include such like 18, that's twice the number of fruit that he mentioned. Uh, and so there's, but it's not an exhaustive list, but Paul makes it very clear. You see these things? Nobody that does that's going to heaven. Paul makes that very clear. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because those things are lawlessness. All of those things are a violation of God's law. Adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, uncleanness. Those four things flow out of 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those four things are built into that commandment. You can go through idolatry. It's a command specifically against that. Witchcraft, that's having, that's part of idolatry. Hatred, variance, emulation. All of those go against this business or are involved in covetousness. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. None of that is in the spirit of love. It's all contrary to that. It's all lawlessness. It's against and goes contrary to the law of God. And, and Paul says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, here's the point I want to make. These are works. That's what the Bible calls. These are the works. These are the activities that sow. They will produce corruption. The result of adultery, fornication. The adultery is not the corruption. Adultery is the seed that brings it. It is corruption. It is a moral corruption. I understand that. But that's not the harvest. That's the seed. That's the work that produces the harvest. The harvest of adultery, the harvest of fornication, the harvest of uncleanness and lasciviousness will be sexually transmitted diseases, broken homes, homosexuality and transgenderism, a society that doesn't know what its gender is, mental issues that come out of that, the harvest of corruption that you reap from all of that. This is the works that produce the harvest. If you do these kind of works, it is sowing to the flesh. Adultery sows to your flesh. Fornication sows to your flesh. Drugs sow to your flesh. The result and the harvest of drugs will be a mind that doesn't function well. I mean, we've seen it. I, I, was, I got a book. I picked it up here, um, I think, over the holidays. I, I'd had it on my book list. Someone had told me about it. It's a good book. Get it. And uh, I found a good deal on eBay. I said, I'm just going to take this one off my book list. I'm going to buy it. So I did. And um, it is by, I think, the last, man's last name. I'm not sure if I say it right. Benoit, B-E-N-O-I-T. And I, I, I don't know if that's Benoit or how you would say it. Benoit, Benoit, however you may say that. I think his first name is Ted. But the, the title of the book is Where Are They Buried? And he goes, and, and what he, what he, he's just a secular fella, and what he did was he took time to, um, he got intrigued with people that have lived, that have had a, a, a pretty big impact upon society, and, uh, you know, well-known, but how did their life end? Where are they at? Where, you know, because many of them, their, their tombstone, people don't even know where it's at, and they're, they're buried somewhere in some little corner of a, a cemetery. And he became intrigued with hunting down the end of these people's lives. And uh, so I was reading some of that yesterday, and he, and he, was, he, he talked about various rappers. He, he does it from various genres of, you know, poets, rappers, just musicians, stars, uh, politicians, different ones. I haven't read all through it yet, but, but different, different famous people or more well-known people. And I was absolutely astounded. I mean, like the Beatles, for example, and John Lennon and Ringo Starr and uh, George Harrison and, and those, those men that were members of the Beatles. And you'll find out that many of these folks Guess what? Yeah, they lived. They saw fame. What happened to them? Drug overdose. They're gone. Some of them shot because they get involved in mafia or whatever, and, and they're, they were just outright murdered. One of the rappers, uh, he got in competition with another rapper, I think, and, and uh, I don't know, I think the mob or something got involved. Anyway, he was just, he's gunned down. Uh, John Lennon was shot. So, uh, Sirhan, Sirhan, is that not, that's not right. Who shot John Lennon? I don't remember. Anyway, he, he stood, you know, he was, I think, going into his motel, and he, he, he pulls out the pistol. Hey, shoots him down right there. Uh, these are real people, and death got a hold of them and took them out. They sowed a life to sex and drugs and fame, and they reaped a harvest of corruption. Our country is reaping a harvest of corruption. The sowing is pornography. The reaping 
is a weak, anemic man who have no control of their passion. The sowing was feminism. The reaping was homosexuality, transgenderism, a reversal of roles in the home. We're reaping major corrupt, a breakdown of society in general. Paul gives us a list of works that are sowings to the flesh and the harvest that comes out of that, division and contentious. We've got this contentious spirit. We're just about on the brink of a civil war again in this country because we've got a contentious, factious spirit and drunkenness and revelings. Again, that, that, that rioting spirit across America. These are all works of the flesh that bring a harvest, a corruption, a breakdown. What is corruption? A corruption is a breakdown of something. It's something that it, when, it, when it eats at something, it breaks it down so that it changes it from its original state. It becomes less. It becomes weak. If you have corruption in metal, we call that rust. Rust is a corruption. It will break the metal down, buddy, that it will lose its strength. It loses its ability to carry the load. And uh, you get a corruption in a frame on your vehicle, and you're liable to just fall apart going down the road. Uh, that was a possibility. I remember that in, in West Virginia. We had salt on the roads there, and I remember one day crawling under my truck and just about coming unglued. Had a little Chevy Love, and I crawled under that thing one day, and I went, oh, boy. My whole chassis was eat up. And I'm like, this is not good. Uh, we need a welder, you know. We got to do something to, to shore this thing up and put some material back in there. Cancer is a form of corruption. It'll break down your vital organs. It'll break down your body. It will kill you. Oh, yeah. Corruption leads to destruction and death. So you have the work, the result being corruption, the result of that being destruction and death. And then he turns to the fruit of the Spirit. And talks about a sowing to the Spirit. Now he mentioned it as being the fruit of the Spirit. Because I will tell you something. That corruption, that work of corruption sowing to the flesh, you can do that one all by yourself. You don't need any help on that one. All right? But that business of fruit of the Spirit, you're not going to do that one by yourself. It's not called the fruit of men. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. But I want to say to you, it's not without work. It is the works of the flesh, but it's called the fruit of the Spirit because it's a fruit that cannot be produced without the help of the Spirit, without the presence and the power of the Spirit in your life. But it does involve a work. It's not called the works of the flesh because it's not entirely produced by the flesh. But Paul talks about in the passage, you've got to sow, you've got to plant, you've got to do what is good. So there are works that do go along with producing love. God is not going to produce the Spirit, let me say it this way, will not produce in your life a harvest of love without activity on your part without some works on your part. So you're not going to have this harvest without work. So, but it's not called the works of the Spirit because it's not entirely done by the Spirit. It's not called the works of the flesh because that would put it in that category of their flesh and it's not something done just by man. It's called a fruit, which is the result of a life source, a life power, and that life is the Spirit. Here's a fruit that comes out of the life of the Spirit, but it's a fruit that's produced in your life through sowing. And the sowing is something you do. That's your work. That's your part. So in both of these, there is work. In both of these, there is fruit. The fruit of the works of the flesh is corruption. The fruit of the Spirit is mentioned for it, but it's life everlasting. So Paul mentions to this business about when you sow to the Spirit, the result of that is life everlasting. Again, what does that life look like? You just read it in those nine fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's life. Now, here's what we talked about this morning. Life in the Scripture is the idea of a quality of existence. Eternal life is defined for us in John 17. Uh, chapter 17, in the first few verses, Jesus says, And this is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and the Son, Jesus Christ, which you have sent. So 
The idea of knowing, entering into a fellowship with God, being able to walk with God, being able to commune with God, being able to live in God's presence, being able to have fellowship with Him, being able to, to walk where He walks, to enjoy what He enjoys, to love what He loves, to hate what He hates, so that you have the same mindset and the same, same goals and the same nature and character. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is you united with God. It's you fellowshipping with God. But what does that look like? Put man and God together and, 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 and God's life, God, the expression of that life. What does it look like? Love. Wherever God's life is, there's love. Wherever God's life is, there's joy. Wherever God's life is, there's peace. Wherever God's life is, there's long-suffering, there's gentleness, there's goodness, there's meekness, there's faith, there's temperance. This, these are, this is the life this is the quality, is how it's described in detail. And again, that's not an exhaustive list. What does that life look like? Eternal life is a quality of existence. It's essentially just being able to live with God. Eternal death is a separation from God. Eternal death is when you have no fellowship with God. You have no communion with God. You cannot walk in His presence. You cannot live with Him. He cannot live with you. So he separates you, he brings you in, he puts you in a lake of fire, and the torments that are in the lake of fire are based on your works. The torments are not the death. The death is the fact that you're separated from God. The torments in hell are based on your works. Your fire will be as hot as your evil deeds. And it will be hotter for some than others. I was reading again about Judas in the scriptures this week and God made a statement about Judas that this time when I read it, I don't know, it just really stuck out to me and, and he's talked about in the final days of his betrayal and he said, yeah, the Son of Man is getting ready to go and he's going to suffer crucifixion. Hey, that's already been determined. I mean, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's already been determined that Jesus Christ is going to suffer. But he said this, woe be to the man that betrays him. He said it would have been better for him if he'd never been born. Can you, this is coming out of the mouth of the Lord himself. What a statement. What a statement to make. He, then he says this about Judas. It had been better for the man that betrays Christ if he had not been born. Wow. That's a powerful 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 statement. And I'm telling you Judas in Acts chapter 1 it mentions that uh, Peter, when he was going to select another apostle, and it, it talks about that Judas fell by transgression and went to his own place. Read it in Acts chapter 1. Judas went to his own place. What's that mean? God has a special place in hell for Judas. Only Judas will occupy it. The servant that knew his Lord's will and did it not will be beaten with many stripes. The servant that didn't know his Lord's will and still didn't do it will be beaten with few stripes. Every man will be recorded to according to his works, whether they be good or evil. Now, the least punishment in hell is bad. Why? Because you're separated from God and every sinner has done evil things and they're going to be punished for it. But I'm telling you right now, there are some folks that hell's going to be hotter for than others because the heat and the flame and the fire and the punishment of hell is according to your works. The place of hell is according to... It's because of your separation from God. You're separated from God. Let men, people talk about hell. Well, that's terrible. I don't see how God could send anybody there. I'll tell you what to do. Have God abandon the earth. Take every Christian and every believer off this planet. We're going to get a little taste of that. But take every believer off this planet and let God abandon the earth. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of the gospel. Pure atheism. Pure humanism. You will create a hell on earth. I wouldn't want to live in a culture that had no light of God's word. Even the nations today around this world are filled with wickedness. There is still some light that's shining in those cultures. And that light has come 
believe it. They may not want to admit it, but it's come from the Word of God because Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into this world. And I want you to understand that right now, if you took God entirely out of the picture, the world would self-destruct. It would be a, a Nazi uh, Germany, worst world time over. Just look at what happens when God lets the devil reign for a little while, him and his and the Antichrist. Look at the, the vileness that fills this planet and the destruction that comes across you with the Antichrist. So, death is separation from God. Life is union with God, and it looks like love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. Let's talk about the first one. How do I get a harvest of love? Now, this is the crowning fruit. It's listed first here because the others really flow out of it. Joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness and goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, all of those really flow out of this business of love, and love here is listed first. It's listed because it is in this way, love is the primary thing. It is the source of all virtue. It is the crown of all virtue. It's the thing from which all other virtues flow, and it's the thing, the end towards all which all virtues need to aim for. Your aim needs to be for love. Love is the primary thing, and that's what Paul will talk about over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says, I'm going to tell you guys, you know, you got all your gifts, your apostles, your prophets, and, and, and you, you talk about all the great gifts. you got faith, your healings, your miracles. He said, I'm going to tell you something, fellas. I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you the greatest way. You can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, he said, man, you're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. You can have all knowledge, understand all mysteries, prophesy and all that, but if you don't have charity, you don't have love, buddy, you ain't worth two cents. You can sacrifice. You can be a martyr. You can give your body to be burned. You can make the great ultimate sacrifice of your own life. But if it's not done in love, it's worthless. It's worthless. Paul said, this is the way of excellence. Charity suffereth long. That's what's mentioned in here, long suffering. It's kind. It's right in here. Vaunteth not itself. Humbleth itself. It's all right in there. The fruit of the Spirit Love is the primary fruit from which the others flow. This needs to be your first focus, love. If you don't get that, you're going nowhere. You're not going to be able to produce the other fruit apart from this. It's the crowning grace in our lives from which all of the others flow. What does love mean? Love speaks to our motive and love speaks to our activity. We could talk about a motive. The motive, motivation to love is that which is an unselfish motive, that which seeks the good of its object. When you talk about love, you have to have an object. It has to be someone. I don't want to say something. We, we talk about because biblically, you know, the kind of love that we're looking at here is not a love for ice cream. You know, I just love my truck. <laughs> okay, great. You know, that's all right, I reckon, you know. And, and, and hey, you know, you got a good truck, praise the Lord, that's great. Uh, that's wonderful. But you know what? I don't live for my truck. Uh, I don't live for ice cream, you know. I, you can say it's something enjoyable. It's something that I really have. But we've used that term so loosely, and it's kind of lost its value. But love typically needs, an, it has to have an object. We love God. We love people. And when the Bible addresses, that's what it addresses more so the idea of loving people and loving God. And to love someone means that you seek what is best for them. You are unselfish. You're not personally interested in gaining from them. You want to, you do for them what is best for them. That's what loving God is. It's when you have a heart so that you do for God what is best for God. What will bring him glory? What will bring him honor? To violate his will is not what's best. To obey him is what is best. To shame God, to discredit him, to, to blast, that's not what's best. Why? Because to shame God, to think less of God, to downgrade God is to downgrade good. To downgrade God is to downgrade holiness. See, it's not just God as a person. You can't separate the person from who they are and what they are. So God is holy. God is good. God is merciful. God is kind. God is unselfish. He is benevolent. He is generous. He is true. He doesn't lie. 
God is all of these things that are good and perfect. And so if you want to reject the person of God, you can't reject the person of God without rejecting the character of God. So when you reject God, you've rejected truth. When you reject God, you've rejected goodness. When you reject God, you've rejected righteousness. When you reject God, you've rejected that which is benevolent and kind and merciful. There is no such thing as being able to keep holiness without keeping God. You can't maintain mercy without the God of mercy. You can't maintain peace without the God of peace. You can't maintain love without the God who is love. A rejection of God is a rejection of love. So understanding this, people just talk about, well, I don't like God as a person. I just don't want that person. Okay, kick God out. Kick God out of the picture. That's what you want to do. Take him out of the picture. You have now not just removed God, you have removed good. You've removed truth. You've removed holiness. You've removed righteousness. You've removed benevolence. You've removed unselfishness. That's why when you crucify the Son of God, the true Barabbas, Barabbas means son of the father. Bar in, in Hebrew means son of. Bar Jesus, if you see that in scripture, is the son of Jesus. Barnabas was the son of consolation. Barabbas, Abba means father. Bar means son of. Barabbas, that name Barabbas means son of the father. They crucified the true son of the father and they got a false son of the father. If you get rid of God, you get rid of life. The only thing left is death. If you get rid of truth, the only thing left is the lie. If you get rid of the light, the only thing left is the darkness. If you get rid of the true son, all you get is a false son. Barabbas. And so this love is first a motivation. It is defined by that unselfish benevolence, seeking what is good for the other person, but it's also activity. We define love by its action so that the Bible says, let us not love in word only, but also in deed and in truth so that you simply talk about, I love that person, but you don't do what is good to that person. You don't love it. You can talk about, a lot of people do this, I love God. What does that mean? Well, what it really means is, is right now I don't want to punch him in the face. Right now, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about him. And I don't want to. But again, if you don't love God, you don't love good. And if you say you love God, it means you have to love what is good. It's contrary to, to fact to say you love God that you don't live as God lives. And you engage in things that God hates. I mean, can you say that the child loves their parent while disobeying that parent? No, the very evidence of love towards a parent is obedience and honor towards that parent. Don't talk to me about you love God and you don't live for God. That's a contradiction of terms. It's ridiculous because love is defined by its activity. And so the motive is that I wish what is good for you. I desire what's good for you. The action of love is that I will do what is good for you. I will tell you the truth. I will, will help you. I will not hurt you. I will not seek to destroy you. I will seek to your, your, what is the best for you. And so when we're in this situation and we're, we're having to, to, to whatever, deal with things, I'm going to be concerned about your things as much as I am for my things. I'm going to take care of that. I'm not going to shortchange you so I can profit. Because that's not what love does. So you must... How do we get a harvest of this in our life? Well, if you're going to have a harvest of love in your life, you're going to have to do the things we said earlier. That is, you're going to have to pray. But the first thing you're going to have to do, besides those things that we talked about earlier about praying and that, is you're going to have to learn about love. Let's look at some scripture. Um, 
I read, I said this this morning as part of that praying, but notice Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this cause, Paul said, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to understand what Paul was saying here, you have to understand it in the context. I, I should have read a, a verse of Scripture before it. Let's just read that. Go in your Bibles, if you're there, at Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause, that was verse 14. Well, what was the cause? He talks about that in verse 13. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and quite frankly, when he's writing this, he's in prison at Rome. He has suffered a lot of hardship to be able to write that letter to them. I mean, when you think about the life of Paul, I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Wow, an amazing thing. Tribulations, trials, distresses, difficulties, you name it. Paul has had it. And, uh, and it's in this city of Ephesus. Paul says when he writes, he's at Ephesus when he writes to Corinth. So the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians were written when Paul was at Ephesus for three years. And he writes the letters over to Corinth. It's in those letters, the second letter particularly, that he talks about, I fought with beast at Ephesus. He talks about the, that whole list he gives, I was beaten, what, five times with stripes, three times with rods. I was a day and night in the deep. I suffered shipwreck. I was stoned. All of these things. He said, there was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Hey, I take three steps forward and two steps backward. That's how Paul's life seemed to be all the time in prison. And all of that was written when he's at Ephesus. He hasn't even got to prison in Caesarea. He hasn't got to prison at Rome. He said all that he's taken now. He's had the beating at Philippi. Well, uh, no, he's, he may not have even, uh, let's see, Philippi will come on his second missionary journey. And so, and, and Corinth as well. So he's already had the beating at Rome. And that's taken place in, not Rome, I'm sorry, Philippi. That's already taken place in his life. But the, the shipwreck that you read about in the latter part of Acts, that's not what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because he's had, that comes after that. He writes the letter to, to Corinth when he's at Ephesus. He hasn't had that shipwreck yet at the island of Malta. He hasn't even had that yet. So that's not what he was talking about when he said a day and night in the deep. Paul has suffered shipwreck before that shipwreck ever took place. That wasn't his first shipwreck. We don't even know about it. We never read about it. We wouldn't even know he suffered it if he hadn't told us about it. This guy didn't go around talking about his sufferings. But finally, he's got to give us a little list here. Five times beaten with 39 stripes or 40 stripes save one. When did he get all that? We read about one time at Philippi, three times beat with, where did he get all of that? This is before arriving at Ephesus or took place when he was at Ephesus. He had a hard go of it, folks. A hard go of it. And so much so that after he leaves Ephesus, he visits the churches in Achaia. And then he, he leaves them again. He visits Corinth again. He leaves them and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. On his way back to Jerusalem where he's going to be jailed and uh, uh, he's going to be uh, going to temple and, and the Jews are going to come out against him and he's going to end up having a two-year jail sentence in Caesarea. But before that happens, in that time, on his way to Jerusalem, he writes a letter to Rome. To the Romans. And when he writes his letter to the Romans, he makes this statement in chapter 8 that we just preached about. He said, I'm persuaded basically nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. He talks about hunger, the sword, all of that. He said, none of that can separate you from the love of Christ. Now remember, 
he has now got beyond that. He has said, made that statement, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. He will go from there after he writes that letter. He'll spend two years in Caesarea, and then he makes his way, has a shipwreck on his way to Rome. He gets to Rome. He's put under house arrest, and, and he stays there in prison while he uh, is waiting his time to go and make his case before Nero. And during that time in prison, he writes back to Ephesus, and he tells Ephesus this. He says, listen, I want you, he said, I don't want you to faint at my tribulations. I don't want you to look at my tribulations and give up hope and say, man, if that's what happens to God's apostles, what's going to happen to me? Look at, look at the men of God. Look at the preachers of God. This guy lives good. Look what happens to him. Paul said, I don't want you to get weak and anemic and lose heart and lose your bravery and your courage. I don't want you giving up in my tribulations. Oh, no, glory to God. That's how Paul comes out of his tribulations and he says, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Hallelujah. You know what Paul learned in his tribulation? He learned that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And that's what he says to them. He said, for this cause, I'm praying for you. I want God to strengthen your inner man. I want God to reach down in there so that you have more heart, so that you have a greater, stronger disposition to carry on against persecution and against difficulty because in so doing, you'll learn the love of Christ. Woo! You'll be able to see the depth and the breadth and the length and the height and you'll know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Hey, you want to learn the love of Christ? You need to get in the trial. You want to know how much God loves you? Oh, glory. Get down where life is hard and you'll find out it's the world that hates you and it's God that loves you. Why is it when we get in trouble, we want to embrace the world and kick God out? We want to criticize God. The source of our trouble is our enemy, not our God. The source of our problems is a decadent, depraved world, not a good and holy God. God's not the cause of my tribulation. God may allow it and through it he'll produce good to them that love him and are called to his purpose. But God's not the cause of sin. God's not the cause of the hindrances. God's not the cause of the sickness. God's not the one that's brought the corruption. That's the result of a sin-sick world. And you experience it. But in that, what I have found out is that the mercies of God are rich. Hallelujah. And though I may walk through the valley, I have found out that there's one that loves me and it's God Almighty. Let me aim for him. Let me look to him. If you want a greater harvest of love in your life and you want to sow love, then you need to get a greater grasp of God, of God's love and how much he loves you. Get rid of this mindset that says, if God loves me, I'll never have anything bad happen to me. If God loves me, I'll have an easy life. If God loves me, there won't be any problems. If God loves me, I'll have a perfect marriage. No. If God loves you, you're more than a conqueror. If God loves you, you can come through the tribulation. If God loves you, hallelujah, you can be able not only to survive but to grow in the midst of your troubles and your difficulties you want a harvest of love then you need to see how much God loves you and how that love is expressed the great love of God is not expressed to us in our times of blessing the great love of God is expressed to us when we're under pressure I think that's powerful God said, Paul says, you know what? He said, when I was under pressure, necessities, infirmities, difficulties, that's when the grace of God was abundant. That's when I learned the grace of God. What is grace? Love in action. Grace and love are essentially the same thing. God's favor is God's love toward you. And so... He says again in Philippians 1 and 9, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgments. So if you want a harvest of love, you need to first of all see what love looks like. We've got a false conception of love. What is love? It's God sticking by you and your problems. It's God not abandoning you. When you complained, when you struggled, when you felt abandoned, and you were tempted to complain against God, 
Do you think Paul, in all of his trials, was always the perfect saint? you got a different opinion of him than I do. He was a man tempted to pride. That's why he was given a, a thorn in the flesh. Lest I should be exalted above measure, he said. But I'm going to tell you right now, Paul knows what it is to fail God. Paul knows what it is to, at times, probably want to grumble against God. He said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. I had to learn it. I didn't know it. I didn't get I had to learn how to be, be content. But he learned, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. But this is something Paul learned in his life. I'm telling you, there were times that Paul was despairing. Second Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about it. He said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. We were pressed out of measure. He said, man, we were taken to the point of death. Why? So we may learn to trust in him who raises the dead. It's the idea, again, Paul learned God's love. And then he could see better how to emulate that in his love and desire. If you don't know what love looks like, you won't do it. It's like going out and having a harvest of apples and you think they're oranges. But you don't know what they are. If you don't know what seed you're planting, you won't know what it looks like when you get a harvest from it or what to expect. Your love abounds in knowledge. You've got to look at the love of God. Look at God's activity towards you. Look how God has been true to you. Look how God has been faithful to you. Count how many times he's forgiven you. Count how many times God has blessed you. Count how many times that God was there when you weren't there. When you didn't show up, God did show up. And when you were going astray, he came out looking for you and, and, and pulling you back. When you, were, when you were there and you were struggling and God carried you. I mean, go look at your life and if you think that your successes have come because of your great wisdom, then you are deceived, my friend. You've had any successes because there's been a God that's merciful. If you've got a home that's had any kind of goodness. It's a God that's merciful. If you have been restored after falling, it's because you got a loving God. That's why this world hadn't helped you get there. This world will not make you a holy person. This world will not make you a loving person. They'll make you self-centered. They'll make you an idolater. They'll make you someone who focuses on your flesh. I'm telling you what God did like a gentle shepherd when you were tugging. to go a wrong way. He pulled you in. His rod would hit you and correct you. His staff would pull you back into his arms. And oh my, yes, you got where you strayed a little, but a message of God came and got you back on track. That's love. When you treated God like an enemy, he still treated you as a friend. That's love. When you were disobedient, he still came after you. That's love. That's love. When you were inconsistent, he was right on time. When you were up and down, he was steady as you go. That's love. And when the world abandoned you, he was right by your side. When no one understood you, he heard your prayers. When no one would listen to your complaints, he listened to you day after day. And when no one would bear you up, he bore you up. That's love. And you never show it to anybody else until you first get a hold of what God has done in your life. You want to sow a harvest? Start by learning what the seed looks like. Start by learning what God has done in your life. Secondly, secondly, John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, you want to sow love? You got to look at the commands. The commandments of Christ. You got to have them. You got to possess them. You can't possess them without learning them. Master the Sermon on the Mount. Master it. Read it until you know what it says. Master the Sermon on the Mount. Because that is the essence of the commands of Christ. There are other things. Look at his commands. If whoever be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. That's Christ, his words. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Listen to the commands of Christ. Treasure them. 
Don't treasure the mess of this world. It'll leave you high and dry. Look, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, guards them, treasures them, and, and, and considers them to be weighty, considers them to be good and beneficial. Read and master the commands of Christ. And Jesus said, the one who has my commandments, he knows them and he treasures them. He wants to keep them. He don't want to lose them. He wants to honor them. He wants to obey them. But he sees them as the essence of what life is to be, lifting up the commands of Christ, which means you respect his authority, which means you understand he is your owner. He is your master. He's your moral governor. He is your leader. And you look at that. Don't just this, let it be verbiage. Look at your life a little bit and see, is Jesus Christ really my master? Do I weigh my actions up when I am getting ready and I have to deal with the situation? I have to deal with my family. I have to deal with my children. I have to deal with my wife. I have to deal with my husband. I have to deal with my brothers. I have to preach to you. Do whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even also unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's the command of Jesus Christ. So if I'm sitting in Brother Benny's shoes and he's up here preaching to me, how do I want this man to preach to me? I know one thing. I don't want him to lie to me. I don't want him to be a hypocrite. I don't want him to tell me something he ain't going to do himself. I don't want a bunch of junk up. Hey, give it to me straight. But I want to know you care. I want to know you're preaching to me, not just to beat me down, but you want to lift me up from where I am. You want to really see me be a saint like God wants me to be. I want to know that. And I'm telling you, if I don't keep that in my mind and keep it in front of me, I'll let my frustration and my anger cause me to do something and preach in a manner I shouldn't preach. You've got to treasure his commands so that you value that and you hold that in high regard and say, I got to remember, I got to go deal with my child. I want to deal with my child how I'd want to be dealt with if I was the child and he was the father or she was the father. I want to deal with my husband and my wife the way I would want them to deal with me if I was on their end. It's called love. It's called love. And if you want this, Jesus says, if you'll do this, that's evidence that you love me. And he said, if you love me, I'll love you. He said, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he that is that loveth me. And he that loveth me will be loved. He that loveth will be loved. He that loveth will be loved. He that sows love is going to reap love. If you love God, he will love you. And I promise you, he'll love you more than you love him. Ah, glory to God. I promise you that what love God bestows upon you will no way, in no way, compare to the love, the measly love that you've been able to show unto him. But he said, my father, he'll be loved to my father. He said, and I will love him, and I'll come to him, and I'll manifest myself. Oh, hallelujah. Is there anybody that hungers for that? Is there anybody that hungers for that? Would you like to see Jesus in a fresh light? Would you like for Jesus to reveal himself to you? Would you like for Jesus to come? That's the harvest. It's the life that you can get if you'll sow the business of knowing his commandments and keeping them and treasuring them. That's the sowing in your obeying those commands and doing what it is, considering the other person first and acting to them as you'd have them act to you. That's the sowing. What are you going to reap from that? God's going to love you like you have never been loved and you're going to get a greater manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ. Woo! You're going to soar like an eagle. It's going to raise you up. It's going to give you a harvest like you never thought you'd have. Not only that, but you sow to that brother and treat him like you'd want to be treated. You'll win a brother that'll love you. I'm telling you, go sacrifice. Treat someone in their hour of their despair. Treat them kindly. And watch what happens when you get in trouble. And see if that kindness isn't returned. Amen. We're wanting people to treat us kindly. And we've treated everybody else like dirt. We want someone to honor us and respect our authority. And we've abused our authority. It don't happen that way. Joe Biden is not winning any brownie points by trampling on the liberties of the people. You want the respect of the nation? You want the vote of the nation? Treat them like the, the people have rights. Treat him like you'd want to be treated. I promise you, Joe Biden would not want to be treated the way he's treating this country. If you rip away his liberties and rip away his riches, 
You can watch out. There's going to be some complaints coming. I'll finish. John 17, quickly, verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here's this again, this love. And Jesus is praying for us. But where does this love come? Jesus says, I've declared your name to them, Father. Your name, Father. Father's name. It goes back to what I was preaching earlier. But more specific. More specific. In Romans 8, it's just generally the love of Christ. But here, this is Father. How much do you really see God as Father? Father. He is my Father. He is my Father. You need to become more aware of how God operates towards you as a Father. He chastens you. How many of you have experienced the chastisement of God lately? I'm the perfect child. I don't need chastisement. Really? That's amazing. Oh, yeah. That's what a father does. He cares about you. The message that you got upset at was meant to correct you, to love you, and bring you, and restore you. But you fussed at it, which means you have no concept of God's love towards you as a father. Now, you have that concept. You want to be able to correct your children and them still love you. Well, then why, when God corrects you, do you get bent out of shape? You don't want your child getting bent out of shape when you have to correct them, do you? No, I want them to receive your correction. I had a daughter that was really struggled with that. And sometimes she had to get a whipping twice because I whipped her the first time. I didn't beat her. I three, three strikes with a switch. That was it. I made them so they could feel them. I just, just wanted, I didn't want to abuse them, but I, I, I wanted them to know I meant business. And when I get done, it was. We got a problem. That's not how I want my child to be. No, that ain't going to work, darling. I wasn't mad. I wasn't. I don't cuss anyway, but I never did that kind of mess. But I'm telling you, I wasn't like, whoa, you know, lose it and start throwing them around the room, beating them upside the head. No, I said. You'll have to get it again. Bend back over. Usually it never took more than two, two times. Three more times of the switch. And then the wheel breaks. The tear comes. And then I can hold him. And say, you must receive it. Because I don't chasten you to beat you or make your life miserable. But your obedience is essential. I love you. I care for you. And they knew I loved them. I think my daughters will testify to that. That daddy loved them. That I genuinely care for their souls. And I care for them to be right. When you correct your child, they ought to not come away thinking, well, dad was really upset, ticked off. They ought to come away thinking, my dad cares about me. My dad cares about me. My mom really cares if they're sore and sour for days, you messed up. You blew it. You blew it. You just need enough of pain to make them realize that disobedience is more painful than obedience. That's all. Doesn't need to, that's right. It doesn't separate us. Chastisement is never meant to bring division between daddy and child. Chastisement is meant to bring a greater love. And at the moment, it's not joyous. But afterwards, it yields. It yields. That's harvest time. The peaceable fruit. Hallelujah. Ah, holiness and righteousness. Yeah, I'm telling you, it will bring a harvest in your life if you receive it. But you cannot get that if you see God as a tyrant, if God's just someone up there with a big stick and God just saw it. In other words, your example and your type of parenting reflects your concept of God. 
If you see God as this taskmaster, as getting angry and beating you on the head every time you do wrong, that's how you'll discipline your children. And that's the idea of God you'll communicate to them and you will have failed. If you are sloppy and lazy and you let your children get by with everything and you spoil them, then that's your concept of God, that God is so loving he would never spank you. God is so loving he would never make your life uncomfortable. God is so loving he would never do anything in your life to cause you pain. Wrong! He's not going to spoil his kids. He's not going to give you something if you shouldn't have it. He's not going to let you have it just because you're a whiner. No, sir. Unless you just go beyond the board and you want to blaspheme him and let him go, then he'll do it. But God cares about you. That's what you've got to be. You want a harvest of love? I tell you, get a concept of the Father's love. Demonstrate that in your own fatherly activities towards your children. I'm telling you, you'll have a children and a descendancy that will love you going to the Lamb of God. And when you're old and in bed, your grandchildren will gather around you and your kids will gather around you and they'll love that hoary head. They'll love that gray head and they'll say, blessed is this man. I close with this. I'm out of time. Hebrews 10, 24. Look at it quickly. Hebrews 10 and 24. You with me? Say amen. amen. Let us consider one another to do what? Provoke unto love and to good works. How many of us have tended to provoke to anger instead of provoke to love? We're more irritating <laughs> than we are exhorting. <laughs> Provoking someone to what does provoke? It's like a goad. It's like a sharp point. I mean, buddy, if you're standing there and I'm behind you in line and I need you to move and I go, Whoop, and I shove that pitchfork in your backside and you jump about three feet in the air and take off down the road. I provoked you. I did something to spur you to action. I did something to motivate you. I did something to move you. And God says that I need to first consider one another, which means I must observe. I must look at you. I must think about you. See the kind of person you are. And then I need to so do things in your presence and towards you that will spur you to love and to love others and to do what is good. If my presence around you, in other words, when you leave the presence of a person who's provoking you to love, you're like, man, I want to get closer to God. That guy right there, man, I want to be like that. I want to, I want to pray. I want to pray more. I want to worship better. I want to go help someone like that. I want to go do that. I want to, I want to have a better attitude about life. What have I done? If my influence on you is that, again, you're going to really have to want to love. Someone that doesn't want to love, you're not going to be able to provoke them to love. You're just going to make them, they're, going, they're not going to want it. But someone who really wants love and they want to do what's right, they'll recognize that in your life when they see it. And they'll say, I want to be that. How do people feel when they leave your presence? Are they encouraged to go out and be worldly? Or are they encouraged to get closer to God? Hey, that's something to think about, isn't it? Woo, praise the Lord. Right? I don't know if you know all of that. I, 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 I pray about that. I said, Lord, I, I want people to feel your presence when I'm in their presence. I want them to feel something from me. But I don't really want to be aware of it. That's how I've prayed. Lord, I want my life to have an impact on others when I get in the presence to bring conviction. On, but I really don't want to be aware of that. Why? Because I don't want to become puffed up by it. 
In other words, I just want to be a normal Joe in their presence doing what I normally do and working towards them. But the full effect on their life will be in their actions, not them standing there singing my praises. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want to become aware of it so that I'm walking away from this and say, wow, I really impacted that life. Wow, I made a difference there. I want to walk away from that. Man, Lord, help me. I hope I can be a light to that person. I hope I can say or do something, Lord. It's a good thing if God doesn't make us aware of our successes. It's a good thing if God withholds from us. That's why sometimes for your children, don't constantly sing their praises. When they have done something average, okay, that's good, let's move on. You don't get a trophy just for taking the trash out. Hello? I mean, your child has to, is coming to you all the time. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, 30 times a day. Oh, you're just the best. <laughs> you are creating a monster. You're creating someone who's going to thirst for affirmation. And if they don't get that affirmation, they're going to be in trouble. Oh, that's good. That's a good picture, kid. Okay, come on. You can do better than that. Hey, you got to encourage them. I understand there's a time. Hey, that was really good. I'm proud of you. That's great. But you can't do that 30 times a day. And you can't do that so that at some point you're just celebrating mediocrity. You're celebrating average work. I love my grandson. Every time. How'd I do on the drums today, Grandpa? <laughs> He's a good boy, and I love him. I love that kid right there, I'm telling you. But I don't tell him. Well, if he don't do great, I tell him. And then sometimes, hey, you did a good job, but you know what? I can't live my life so that after every sermon I preach, I've got to have someone come up to me. Oh, Brother Woods, that was the greatest sermon. Oh, Brother Woods, that was so good. Oh, Brother Woods, I just thank you so much for that sermon. If that's what I do, I will begin to preach for your praise. You can't live like that. You can't do your work for the purpose of getting praised. And that's what you're creating in your children when all you do is praise them. If they're just doing normal work, move on with life and let them know, hey, that's good, that's expected of you. That's what God said. When you've done all these things, just say, I've just done which was my duty to do. God will not spoil you and he will not constantly seek to affirm you when you're just doing mediocre things. Amen? Mm -hmm.